Well, this will be the last Sunday I get to say it, but I'm going to say it again because I'm still a child at heart and Christmas is not over. (laughs) Right? Merry Christmas to you. Okay, I know a lot of you have been wondering a certain thing that's really obvious and and you probably haven't said anything, but several people have actually asked me. Yes, it's true that Ian, before he started his law degree... Was, actually, was fascinated with a certain 1960s performer and spent hours and years of his life singing and playing a certain style that is actually close to my heart and a lot of the rest of us. So I always love to hear uh, Ian come and lead us in worship. And uh, yes, it's true. You've heard, you've heard that before. It's really true. <clears throat> So I think some people are like, you know, have you noticed? I said, yes. <laughs> I sort of noticed, and, and it's actually because he spent a long time, many years, developing that intentionally. And we love, we love your gift. Thank you so much, Ian, for sharing with us. Okay, this is the last Sunday that I get to tell a crazy Christmas story, and I'll do it quickly because it has absolutely nothing to do with this with the sermon except the fact that it was a surprise. Because <laughs> we are still today thinking about surprises at Christmas. I told you about my crazy two brothers and some of the other things that my family like to do to surprise each other on Christmas. And so one year, uh, the first year we were married, Ann and I had just been married about a month or so before Christmas. And before we got married, we had been talking about, you know, what would we name our children? Well, I thought, okay, I'm going to suggest this crazy name that she would never agree to. Uh, but it's a deeply theological name. And I said, how about we name the first child Chesed, which is the Hebrew word for loving kindness. And actually... Later, we named our first child that, and Kesed is sitting here uh, this morning worshiping with us. We're really glad to have our kids with us this Christmas. Well, about that same time, I found this cute little teddy bear. Now, how many? some of you brought teddy bears today. How many of you brought a, a bear? I see him. I saw a blue bear back there. Well, this wasn't blue. It was just a cute little bear, and Anne decided to name it Kessie, the sort of a baby form of Kessid. And we started kiddingly saying, yes, it's like our baby. It was just a little bitty t- teddy bear. So that first Christmas with my family, we had opened presents, and things were calming down a little bit. And my two crazy brothers decided to play a trick on Anne. They saw the bear and hid it from her, and then got a newspaper and cut out, as kidnappers often do, the words from all across there and made a little letter and, you know, basically said, we have your baby. (laughs) Put it in an envelope and gave it to her. And... I think there were at least a dozen hints. She Basically, they sent her on a wild goose chase all over the house trying to find her little baby teddy bear, which they had put on top of the fan sitting right in the family room where she walked under it at least five or six times during that whole time looking for the bear. She just didn't look up. That was a surprise that she was not expecting and probably the meanest one that they pulled on her 
But again, typical of the kinds of surprises that were always taking place at my house. Today we're looking at another surprise. Today we're looking at a story that takes place very soon after the birth of Jesus, but it's so tied in with the Christmas stories. I wanted to look at it with you again today. Turn to Luke, the second chapter. There's so many interesting lessons to learn from these verses, and I'm just going to skip through them as briefly as I can, but they are wonderful lessons for us today. And the first lesson we can learn is a lot about Joseph and Mary and the kind of family that Jesus grew up in. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. This is the only time in history that the baby chose which family it was going to be raised in. Jesus chose his family. And as we say in Mississippi, you know, you can pick your friends, but you're stuck with your family. He picked his family. And we see a model of family life that I find to be fascinating and challenging to me personally. Beginning with verse 21 of Luke 2. When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. And when the days of their purification according to the law of Moses were finished... They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, just as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, we've heard those words before, but I want to just briefly think about what's going on here. Because what we are given here is a picture of a very devout, faithful family of deep religious conviction. It actually fits into the larger stories that we've been reading for the past month. Because in almost every one of them, there is a statement about the fact that the people involved were very conscientious Jews. They were people who took their faith seriously. It wasn't just uh, where they were born. It was who they were and, and, and what they did on a daily basis. And so in these verses, we see three things that happened that are all specifically religious in nature and have a connection, I believe, with the broader story. The first thing we see in verse 21 is that on the eighth day, that's how long they were supposed to wait, they had taken the baby Jesus and had him circumcised. Now, we have been looking at these birth stories in light of the broader story, the grand narrative of Scripture, in light of the Old Testament and all that had gone before and how Jesus was the fulfillment of so many of those stories. And so here 
in the actual life of Jesus, we see his family going through some religious steps that were specifically tied to pieces of our Jesse tree that we've been talking about, that point back to the Old Testament. Circumcision was the sign of the special relationship that God had first established with Abraham. Thousands of years before Christ. And it said, God had said to Abraham, I will be your God and you will be my people. You will follow me. You will believe in me. You will be faithful to me. I will be faithful to you. I will bless you and you will be a blessing to others. And so the actual circumcision of Jesus, like it is for every person who is circumcised, was a remembrance of the covenant that God had first established with sinful men to say, let's make a special relationship based on God's grace and based on an understanding of how we live in such a way to bring honor to God. So they began his life in the right way by reminding themselves of this relationship that they had as the people of Israel, as Jews, they circumcised the baby on the eighth day as a sign that they're holding to the promise God had made to Abraham 2,000 years before this moment. But that's not all they did. Then, it's, then we're told in verse 22 that the days of their purification according to the law of Moses were finished. They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Did you know that in the Old Testament, in the law, God stipulated very carefully that every animal, every sheep, every cow, whatever, who gave birth, the firstborn of that particular animal was to be brought and presented as a sacrifice to the Lord. As a reminder to, uh, for those people, as a dedication, that everything that they were and everything that they had actually belonged to God. And in the same way, the firstborn son was also to be brought and dedicated to the Lord, not as an actual sacrifice, but as an offering. And every time this shows up in the Old Testament law, the people are reminded that this is actually a memory too. It's intentionally to help them remember that God had saved their firstborn on the night of the Passover. When they had taken the blood of the lamb and put it on the post, the doorposts of their doors, and that angel of death had passed over them, and they were saved, their firstborn were saved, while finally the tenth plague in Egypt, the firstborn of Egypt, were all lost that night, so that Pharaoh would finally let the people go. And so they brought Jesus to the temple to present him, to dedicate him to the service of God. Remembering in their hearts and minds the story of that Passover because that's the purpose of this presenting the firstborn, to remind them that God had saved 
their firstborn, had passed over them and that their people had been saved. And so circumcision reminds them of Abraham. Presenting the firstborn reminds them of those miraculous plagues in Egypt that eventually this final one tent set them free so that they could go and be God's people in the land of Canaan. And then one more thing it says that they also presented a sacrifice to purify Mary. In the Old Testament law, we see repeatedly a basic principle that the shedding of blood is necessary to cover sin. And because of that, blood is very, very special in the Old Testament law, in their relationship with God. If they had been involved in blood, if they had blood on them, or if they were bleeding, they were ritually unclean because blood was considered very special and it was only to be offered to the Lord in the temple complex. So after the birth, Mary had to wait, Mary and Joseph had to wait 40 days. 40 days. That was the accepted time period. And then they brought to the temple a sacrifice, as the law had said, so that Mary would be ritually pure again. Mary was not perfect. She was special. She was godly. She was faithful. But she was not without sin. She was human like we are. And so she also, along with Joseph, had to bring this offering. It's interesting that the normal offering generally brought was a lamb and a small bird. But if you were unable, if you were not wealthy, if you just simply couldn't afford to bring a lamb, God had provided this other sacrifice of just two small birds, something much cheaper for them. And what it tells us is that this family that Jesus chose to be born into was at the bottom of the economic ladder, even in their own day and among their people. They were not wealthy people. They were simple people. But we see in these verses how faithful they were. We see that they're establishing, even at the very birth of Jesus, a legacy of faith for their family. I've been talking to a number of students at Golden Gate in the last couple of years who are part of churches where most of the families in their churches have entrusted almost all of the spiritual education to the church itself. They bring their children to church and they expect the church to do all of the education. And many of those young people now growing up seem to have little interest in their Christian faith. I believe that God intended for us to, to be involved in church and to educate our children and in church, but every family must also establish a legacy of faith of their own. 
We are people who follow Christ. We follow Him at home. We talk about Him at home. We remember these things at home because we're passing on from parent to child as well as from church to all of us. From parent to child, we're passing on our deeply held convictions about who Jesus is, about our faith, about who God is and what He has done for us. So... Do not neglect your faith at home. Not just to say, oh, we have to go to church. Please, you know, I'm wondering, I'm so glad you're here. I want you to come to church. That's really important. But the legacy of faith needs to be personal and family as well as church-centered. And that's exactly what we see in their lives of these very special parents, Joseph and Mary. And each of these rituals that they've gone through reminds them of the broader story that Jesus now is going to fit into. The promise to Abraham to be blessed and to bless the whole world. A promise to Moses that if they would trust in the blood of a lamb, they would be passed over. And then finally, a sacrifice of blood. For we know that Jesus himself was declared to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His parents were living out those events and those promises as they performed these expected rituals. And I have a feeling that they were especially aware of the significance of all this because they had a hint that Jesus fit into that much longer story and that bigger picture. But I want us to look at what happens next in this passage because we have another surprise. In verse 25 and following, we're told about a man named Simeon. And I believe that this must have shocked Joseph and Mary on this day where they've come to the temple. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple complex When the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the nations. And glory to your people, Israel. Now up to this point in the story, Mary and Joseph generally seem to be the only ones who know what's going on with this special birth. You know, the the city of Jerusalem didn't seem to know. It appears that no one else in Bethlehem actually caught on and realized that the birth of this baby was the long-awaited Messiah. They're not getting a lot of public acclaim. Most people don't know what's going on. They're going about their business quietly, which is probably to their advantage. 
And here in the temple, a man that the Spirit so carefully tells us was guided by God himself. He was a man in whom the Holy Spirit was living and working and speaking to him. And the Holy Spirit had told him specifically, you will not die until you physically see the Messiah that we've been waiting on all of these centuries. You will see him physically. And it appears it was so specific that on this day, the Spirit led him to be in that very place where they came into the outer courts of the temple. And when he saw them, he recognized again, I believe led by God, to know this couple with that baby, that's the one. That's the Messiah. That's the King of Israel. That's the Savior of the world. That one right there. And Simeon came over to them filled with joy. They're just quietly going about their business. They're probably humble. Again, we know poor people not trying to draw attention. They didn't walk into the temple announcing, Hey, look, we're presenting the Messiah. No, they're quiet people. Simeon grabs that baby and holds him up and begins to praise God. That must have been interesting to others walking back and forth through the temple. And he says these words, Lord, I am ready to come home because the promise that you gave me that before I would die, I would see This particular child, I know this is the one, and I have seen it. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all the nations. A light for revelation to all the nations, and glory for your own people Israel, from whom he has been born. And it says... His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. This surprised them. They weren't expecting this when they brought him to present him in the temple. Then it says, Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary these words. Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel. And to be a sign that will be opposed That too must have been a surprise. And a sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. There's three things that we see in these statements from Simeon that echo what we read from Isaiah 49 earlier. Turn back to Isaiah 49, especially verses Five through seven. Verse five states that this Messiah was sent to bring the people of Israel back into right relationship with God. Listen to what it says. And now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel may be gathered to him. 
For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. A glory for my people, Israel. Jesus came to tell the people of Israel God's gift and to show them the way to a deeper relationship with Him. But it doesn't end there because He says this is also a light to the nations. This is a way God is revealing His purpose to all the peoples of the world. And listen to what Isaiah had said in verse 6. It is not enough for you to be my servant raising up the tribes of Jacob alone and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Jesus came to reveal God to the Jews. They knew God, they knew about God, but Jesus came to introduce them into a deeper relationship with God. To bring them back into right relationship, as it says here. But in addition to that, Jesus came not just for the Jews, but for the whole world, for every people. And this goes straight back to that earlier covenant, again, that God had made with Abraham, where he said... You will be my special people, but through you, I will bless every family on earth. Every people, every language, every nation will have an opportunity in this amazing gift that we have in the Messiah. But then in, the, in verse 7, there's a surprise in Isaiah. This is what the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, His Holy One says to one who is despised, to one abhorred by people, to a servant of rulers. Kings will see and stand up and princes will bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and He has chosen you. Verse 7 tells us that there will be a mixed response to this gift. There will be some who abhor it, who hate it, who reject it, who have nothing to do with it. And there are others, including kings and princes, who see this gift and are changed forever by it. These are the exact themes that Simeon announces there to Joseph and Mary as he holds up the baby. That Jesus is going to bring glory to the people of Israel. But he's also come as a light for all the peoples of the world. And yet, in spite of this amazing gift that mankind does not deserve, there's going to be opposition. This simple story of Jesus is the most revolutionary story in the world. For many of us who grew up hearing it from childhood, it may not seem that way. It may seem old hat. But the fact that there is a creator God who knows us, who holds us accountable, that we rebelled against, and that he has now given himself, his own son, to be the sacrifice, to pay the penalty for our guilt, so that we could know him again, because without that is impossible to know him. For there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. 
This is the most amazing story in the world, and it is a controversial one because it is absolutely revolutionary. You can't believe this story in the same sense that you believe that the stripers might be biting in the bay this afternoon. It's different from every other fact, from every other story in the world. It stands out. There's nothing like it. And when people, when the nations hear this story for the first time, they're astounded. Last summer, I took 11 students to Asia. And as we shared this story with hundreds of people, so many of them said, this is true? How can this be? How could something so amazing and wonderful really be? And sometimes they wanted to ask, and why is it no one's told me until now? If this story is true, it deserves, it demands to be known by every people, does it not? I was in Indonesia 18 months ago visiting with two old friends that I had worked with many years before when Anne and I were there and our children were very young. We were working with the Muslim people that at the time we could count the number of believers on our hands. Out of 32 million, there were almost no believers. And I sat and listened for several hours as these two old colleagues began to tell me about all the Muslim men and women who had heard this simple story and had decided to face persecution. Beaten up, thrown out of their families, some of them worse than that. Because they dared to believe that this story was true and it changed their lives. And in that one particular area where we were visiting, 6,000 Muslim men and women had followed Jesus in public baptism to declare to their families and their villages that they now believe this story. This story, by its nature, divides. That's what Simeon said. It's going to cause controversy. It's going to be divisive, not because God wants it to be, but because it offers a way of salvation and it is the only way that we can be right with God. Some reject that and are offended. In our own country, the only thing that's politically incorrect is that you can't have a Christian conviction. You can be convicted about anything else. You can, be convi- you can have a conviction that convictions don't matter. But you are not supposed to, at least if you have it, you're supposed to keep it to yourself. You're not supposed to say Jesus is our Savior and our only hope. It's been this way, friends, from the beginning. Look at the response of Herod. It's been this way from the beginning because there are some who are afraid of believing. But we must be faithful.
We've been giving to the Lightyman Christmas offering all this month. And I'm so thankful for your generosity. But we know that there are 800 missionaries who've had to come home this Christmas because we didn't support them adequately to stay where they are. Now, there's still 4,000 out there faithfully serving. If you have not given a gift to accomplish the purpose that God said Jesus came into this world, to be our Savior and the Savior of every people on earth, if you've not given a personal gift for that, would you consider doing so as we end this holiday season? There is in your pew an envelope. Yes, we are getting close to our church goal, but I don't believe church goals are really fulfilled until every person gives what God lays on our hearts to give. What do you think? So would you consider, if you've not contributed, to support the purpose that this salvation given to me and you would be made available to every people on the face of this world. Praise God it got to me. Praise God it got to you. And how many people did it go through before it got to me? Hundreds, hundreds. I can't even imagine. Praise God for their faithfulness and sharing and living and being who God called them to be. Praise God for that. Now it's time for us to follow this Messiah and to be faithful in our lives as well. That's really what Christmas is about, isn't it? To believe this Messiah and to give ourselves to Him and say, I will live to bring you honor. Would you stand with me as we sing a hymn of commitment? Without Him, honestly, without Him, I could do nothing. It's so true. Would you make the commitment of your heart to Him as we stand together and sing?